financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a paleo-fiction author discusses real-life sea monsters in our midst. You know, people always think like, oh, look at this 500-pound grouper coming up to me, you know, swimming next to me, looking at me. They're such curious creatures. And I laugh because the grouper is not curious when he looks at you. He's measuring. So when he's looking at you, he's calculating, will that fit? And if he thinks you're going to fit, he's going to try. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, Go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Max Hawthorne is the author of the Kronos Rising series of books, and he's standing by to discuss sea monsters, both real and imagined. Now, in the summer of 1976, I was 12 and a half years old. My family and I were heading to the East Coast to Cavendish Beach Campground inside the Prince Edward Island National Park, where my siblings and I eagerly anticipated our very first swim in the Atlantic Ocean. 
Now, on the way, I was reading Peter Benchley's Jaws in the back seat of our 73 Ford LTD, and that turned out to be a major miscalculation on my part. By the time we walked to the water's edge and my father proudly led the way into the water, I was standing alone on the beach, paralyzed with fear, convinced the moment I dipped my big toe in the foamy surf, a huge great white shark would breach out of the water and swallow me whole, a la Quint the Robert Shaw character in Benchley's disturbing fishtail. My father had driven 17 hours and 1,700 kilometers to get me to swim in the ocean, but I was done. 44 years after I finally convinced myself it was safe to go back in the water, along comes paleo-fiction author Max Hawthorne, who writes very scary books about leviathans of the deep that terrorize coastal towns. Max is known as the Prince of Paleofiction. He was born in Brooklyn and attended school in Philadelphia, where he graduated from the University of the Arts. He's the author of the award-winning Kronos Rising novel series, as well as Memoirs of a Gym Rat, an outrageous expose of the health club industry. In addition to being a best-selling indie novelist, he's an amateur paleontologist, a blog talk radio host, a voting member of the Authors Guild, an IGFA world record-holding angler and an avid sportsman and conservationist. Max Hawthorne, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me. What's paleofiction all about? Um, I think it's kind of been around since, well, since Jurassic Park, more or less, first came out. I mean, I, we, you technically, I guess you go all the way back to the days of The Lost World and such, you know, the original True. books. True. Yeah. But um, I think that the term paleofiction was coined probably in the last... 10 or 15 years, I want to guess. But basically, it's there, it's novels that uh, feature extinct life forms or pres- presumably extinct life forms alive in the present, typically. And, uh, you know, what the human experience when encountering said creatures in a modern environment, etc. So, you know, kind of like Jurassic Park type stuff, I guess you'd say. Right. And do you have a background in paleontology or is this a hobby? Uh, well, in the beginning, I mean, I've always, my dad is a rock hound. Well, he's uh, retired now, but uh, so he always had that when I was growing up where he would be wheeling and dealing. He used to have a jewelry store, but he also sold minerals and things like that for many years, including some famous people back in the day. Um, I grew up with dinosaur bones and woolly mammoth skeletons on top of our piano and giant shark's teeth and all this other stuff. So I was exposed to this stuff from a very young age. But I, I kind of, once I started writing paleofiction, mine's a little more marine-based, of course, um, I, I got more drawn into the actual aspects of paleontology and, uh, you know, became, I, I, eventually at this point, I guess you'd say I am an amateur paleontologist because my first formal scientific paper um, in paleontology uh, was published uh, about six months ago. Uh, working with Dr. Mark McMenamin. Uh, he's a professor of geology from Mount Holyoke College, and Paul de LaSalle, who is a paleontologist from the UK and a, a famous fossil hunter also. And I had a, developed a theory on Pleiades or locomotion, uh, you know, like the Loch Ness Monster, everybody pictures, right, right. you know, the long neck, the four paddles. And uh, I basically, in my opinion, and a lot of people seem to share this, uh, came up with the most logical solution as to how these animals swam, these marine reptiles, using all four paddles simultaneously in ways that were advantageous to them and didn't uh, waste energy, let's say, by having like flippers moving through the same range of motion. So I put it all together and then I was able, you know, blessed to be able to work with some great guys like that. And we put out a formal paper on it, uh, you know, putting all the details out there. So it's now out there on ResearchGate and everywhere else. So speaking of flyosaurs and, and the Loch Ness Monster, do you mm-hmm. subscribe or at least do you buy into the idea that there may be living dinosaurs apart from crocodiles, which are <laughs> living dinosaurs, but remnants from a previous age? Bygone era? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe that the Earth is a very large place, even though it does get smaller and smaller. I think that there are... Uh, the odds are in certain lakes, you you may encounter things, especially large and more isolated ones. But I believe the ocean, which, as we know, is only only 5% of the ocean, I believe, has been explored. And that's only the bottom. You know, it doesn't include, obviously, top, you know, 
service to floor, et cetera. So I mean, the, the millions and millions of cubic square miles out there of ocean are almost unlimited. And there have been so many sightings, anecdotal, recent, of creatures that are supposedly extinct that you have to ask yourself eventually, you know, what are these people seeing? You know, what are they filmed? Like like Gary Lamada's giant turtle and things like that I investigated. So I believe that there is it is likely, based on sightings, that there may be a a relic population of Mosasaur, a one or more species still eking out an existence out there. And I believe that it is pretty much almost pretty much confirmed that there is at least one species of enormous piscivorous marine turtle out there which approaches a bust in size. And I also believe that said animal is also the, the creature that they call the super predator. The one that, you know, a few years back, there were these specials and all this fervor about, you know, what a shark alpha, you know, that nine or 10 foot grade white that was consumed right. and the tag was found. I believe that the same turtle that Gary Lamada filmed back in 1969, not the exact same one, but the same type of animal is what, ran down and ate that shark. And there's a lot of reasons for it that I could get into. I mean, there, there, there are things out there that can't be explained. So in 1969, a fisherman named Gary LaMotta, um, out of, uh, I think it was Newfoundland, he, back then, now this is 1969, so the state-of-the-art you know, cell phone camera was then a Super 8 home you know, film camera. And he spotted an enormous uh, animal uh, frolicking on the surface, splashing around, etc. This was shortly after a storm. And it's interesting because a lot of sightings of these things seem to take place after storm fronts have moved in, etc. So it makes one wonder when a, a front comes through and it stirs up the, the ocean and the reefs and everything else like that, obviously a lot of life is, marine life is thrown into chaos, let's say. You know, fish are pushed by the pressure fronts, etc. They condense in certain areas. So it would make sense that something like that would be somewhere where it normally is. But uh, so he described an animal that was 38 feet long, uh, that was moving around. Uh, it stuck its head up out of the water, and he described its head and neck alone as being eight feet long. Now think about it, eight feet. See on the floor, that's pretty big. And uh, he got some film of it with it with his super great camera. And then he said eventually it uh, submerged and it took off at what he called a terrific speed, which is interesting also. Um, he, oh, he also said, it, he had a lot of details, but uh, he said it was like a turtle, but it, it didn't really seem to have a shell. Uh, its body was, I believe he said, eight feet across, which is for a 38-foot turtle is fairly narrow. Um, flippers, you know, the usual what you'd expect, large flippers in the front, that type of thing. But he said, like, the face was really that of an enormous turtle. So um, this sighting has been something that was on TV shows back in the day and such in the 70s. You know, I think it was a show called Monsters or something. And uh, I got, like, you know, I was looking at the, the footage. And, it, you know, it's dark. It's grainy. It's really hard to see. But I took a couple frames of it and just for a whim, you know, on a whim, I put it on my computer and I, you know, enhanced them. And I adjusted, you know, lighten them, lighten them and increase the contrast. And lo and behold... Because I, I didn't know what, you know, you can't really tell what this is. I'm like, is that a flipper? Is that a head? It's just almost like a silhouette. But when I enhanced it, I'm looking at now the head of an enormous turtle. And it, there's no denying it. People can say, oh, that's really hard to see. But it's not, even though it's grainy. You can see very distinctively the shape of its eyes. You can see the thick ridge of skin under the eye, the beak, the border of the mouth, the underside of the jaw. You know, it has that undershot jaw. And then the, the folds of skin going down under the throat. It's all there. Right. So for me, that was a no-brainer that Gary was quite accurate that he has seen some sort of gigantic turtle. And once you know what you're looking at and you look at the footage again, now it, it really jumps out at you because you can see that it's kind of like holding its position, using its flippers under the surface, undulating them, and it's just looking around. I mean, personally, I wouldn't want to have been in the water with this thing. A 38-foot turtle was big enough to eat a person with no problem. But uh, so that was his sighting. And again, and, this, uh, was a, this was an, an ocean-dwelling creature, correct? Yes, yes. Because yes. lakes are a lot harder because, you you know, you're more restrictive. Right. But there was, um, a, 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 what was it called, um, stupendous 
Geographicus or something. It was a freshwater turtle that was that is extinct, supposedly. Yeah, I think that was from the Miocene, from the time of uh, Titanoboa or Perusaurus, that huge caiman that lived in South America. But uh, yeah, this thing w- is a marine animal. Right. It's you know, a, like, like I mean, there are extinct turtles from the time of the Cretaceous, like Archelon, that were sizable and they had a leathery shell. You know, he described this thing as being sort of like that, but without the shell. So it's not inconceivable that an Archelon type animal which I believe they were, I mean, they were pretty big then, like 15, 16 feet long, something like that, could have changed, obviously, over 65 million years and evolved into a piscivorous you know, predator. Piscivore means something that eats fish, primarily. So, uh, you know, so in, in relation to the super predator story, um, and I don't, you know, win any love from the people that did the documentaries and stuff. I don't know if they think I was stepping on their toes or what, but... Um, you know, somebody sent me a very nasty email <laughs> to my 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 old website. You know, like, who do you think you are? You don't have a background in marine biology, et cetera. But the facts are the facts. Right. It doesn't right. take a rocket scientist to you know put things together. So the super predator was characterized by the following: um, you have a three meter white shark that's hanging out near the surface. All of a sudden. It dives at incredible speed and it goes deep down far. I don't know. I think it was pushing 2,000 feet and then it stops. All of a sudden, its body temperature, the tag is embedded in its dorsal region, like in the muscle and skin there, jumps from, I think it was 44 to 78 degrees of memory service. It's been a while, so, <laughs> but uh, you know, that was its, it's also jumps in seconds to that. And then the tag then gradually, like, moves back up to the surface. It stays there for the next eight days. And then it is excreted at this point. Um, oh, uh, let me go back. It stays near the surface or down to a depth of 300 feet for the next eight days. The tag comes back out, is ocean temperature again, and washes up on shore with evidence that it's been acid etched, meaning it was in something's stomach. So we can deduce from this, as they did on the show, that um, the animal, the shark, was fleeing. Uh, it was grabbed, it was chased down, and it was ingested, not just the tag, most likely, but the actual animal. And I say this because it took eight days for it to digest, at which point it was excreted, etc. There's a couple things that they didn't mention on the show, those documentaries. The first was that if you look at the chart where they show shark alpha's movements, a day or two prior to that, she had made a similar dive, two of them, in the days prior to that where she was going down deep and then came back up and she was fine. So I suspect that she was chased by this thing or another one of them, but most likely the same animal more than once, and she managed to escape. Like great white sharks are known to use a tactic like this when they are attacked by killer whales or one of their kind, like in the Farallon Islands, is killed by orcas. When that happens, it was documented every shark around the Farallons dove to 1,500 feet and swam to Hawaii to escape their natural predator. And they stayed there away for a while. So I believe that Shark Alpha realized she was dealing with an air-breathing nemesis. She tried to dive to depths where it couldn't go. And orcas have limits. They couldn't go as deep as she went. She got caught the third time. She got eaten, etc. And then, obviously, this animal went back up to the surface. So one of the shows was saying, which I, I disagreed with, of course, vehemently, that, uh, oh, it was the, a megalodon was living in the ocean abysses and came up and grabbed the, the, the shark and then carried it down to the bottom and ate it. And the, the data does, doesn't jive with that. I thought that was very bizarre that somebody would say that because the data shows that the shark was there and then it was diving, 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 diving. And then it was, its temperature jumped. So why would a shark grab, come all the way from the bottom, go all the way up to the top, make a kill, not eat its kill there? I mean, who's going to steal, you know, a, a meal from a 45 or 50 foot shark? Nothing. Right, right. But then it drags it all the way down to the abyss. It eats it there. Okay. But it doesn't, the logic fails there because if this, shark lived in the abysses, like they were saying, why is it then going back up to the surface like the tag shows for the next eight days and staying from the surface to 300 feet only? Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, those are 
those are ranges, and one of the shows said this, that match the behavior of an orca, of a killer whale on air breeder. So uh, the temperature is another thing. But um, So right away, you could say right there that, you know, this is not a megalodon or any other big shark like that, et cetera. I don't even think a megalodon could catch a 10-foot great white, which would be able to swim, swim at 35 miles an hour. The bigger a shark gets, the slower it gets because it's got a skeleton made of cartilage. Now, if you look at basking sharks, whale sharks, they're slugs. I right. mean, they swim at three, three, four, five miles an hour. And even deep blue, that twenty-foot great white that they show, you know, sl- you know, sliding around. You know, she's got dolphins coming up, nipping her. Uh, I saw one video; a dolphin came up and slapped her in the face with its tail, and then swam <laughs> off laughing. I swear to God, and I, I'm like, it's so disrespectful, you know. But she doesn't even try because she knows that she's at. 20 feet and probably five, 6,000 pounds, whatever, I mean, she's girthy. She can't catch these cetaceans, you know? So a 40, 50 foot shark is going to be pretty slow. But anyway, so you, you've got this now, this thing on the surface or in this area. Now you've got the temperature differential. And this is what made me think more and more of some sort of gigantic turtle. Uh, you know, the difference in temperature between alpha's flesh, skin, et cetera, and the inside of whatever ate her stomach was a difference of 32 degrees, I think it was, or 36. I think it was 32, because it went from 46, I think, to 38, if I'm remembering correctly. And the maximum temperature differential that, if you look it up, from the elasma, elasma branchologist, sorry, I'm tongue-tied, um, for a great white, a great white's body temperature varies in different parts of its body. And the stomach is the warmest part in the core. So that maximum differential they show is typically up to 25 degrees. This thing had a difference of 32 or 36, I think it was 36 degrees. Interestingly, that is the exact differential that a leatherback sea turtle shows how its body temperature can be higher than the surrounding water. Uh-huh. So now you say, okay, is this a leatherback? But that doesn't make sense. Leatherbacks eat jellyfish and could never consume a great white shark as big or bigger than them. So that was like thrown out the window, you know. But then you got like then this eight-day digestive system, I mean digestive process. You know, this thing is in the, the shark alpha and the tracker are in the stomach of this predator for the next eight days. And uh, normal sea turtles, their digestive system is not, you know, super convoluted, etc. But a leatherbacks is six times longer than your typical sea turtles. So when food goes through there, it takes a long time. And large reptiles often take a long time to digest their food. You know, my big python I used to have when I was younger, it could go a week before it would sure. be ready for sure. its meal. So this is ticking so, all the boxes, right? For a, a giant cousin, maybe, of a leatherback turtle? Yeah, so, something. I mean, I start thinking more. I, I, I was completely convinced at this point, this is before I had done a lot of footage, that it was some sort of marine reptile, like a mosasaur or something like that. You know, now we know, based on the most recent recent scientific discoveries, that mosasaurs and pliosaurs, plesiosaurs, had a body temperature similar to cetaceans, 98, 99 degrees, something like that. So that doesn't jive, which puts us back again to some sort of turtle, et cetera. Once I, I found the Lomata footage and enhanced it, and I'm staring at the face of this giant turtle, now you gotta say, okay, this seems to make sense. You know, a 38-foot animal, I mean, that's it, gigantic. It might, could have weighed 15, 20 tons or more. My word. You know, uh, where yeah, where that, would that, it that. lay its eggs, Max? It would have to come ashore, wouldn't it? Well, this is the thing. So there are adaptations, you know, that normally sea turtles, you know, cannot give birth to live young, like mosasaurs did and plesiosaurs did, etc. But this animal sounds more in between you know it seems to have lost its shell it's a lot more nimble especially the way Lamada described it so basically the only impediment honestly i mean i don't think a 38 foot turtle could come ashore it's just impossible you know by sheer mass archelon i think weighed three or four tons if i'm remembering you know and it must have come ashore to lay eggs but i'm sure that was an ordeal you know in my books i i would compensate for that by having the animal use the incoming tide to help push it you know, or something to get it started. But um, so, you know, if it's able to give birth to live young, then 
and it has to be. I mean, the thing seems to exist. Right. You know? Right. I mean, they even had on one of the shows at one point when they were trying to hunt this thing down, they came up with a large reading that they said was 10 or 11 meters that they had on sonar deep down under them. And it was moving slowly. And they just dismissed it saying, oh, it's got to be a whale. But sea turtles normally swim quite lethargically when they're not, you know, being chased or harassed or something like that. You know, they don't have any reason to get moving. You know, it's quite possible that they track this thing on sonar. It's in the size range. 10 or 11 meters is like 33, 34 feet, something like that. And they just dismissed it out of hand thinking it was a whale. I don't think it was. You know, leatherback turtles can swim at 22 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. Yes. Now yes. scale that up to something, you know, something much bigger. You know, blue whales can do 30 miles an hour. Sperm whales, which are big and bulky and you think ponderous, are able to push close to 30. Something as streamlined as what Gary saw and it swam as powerfully as he described, you know, in my opinion, could, you know, if persistent, chase down a, a great white shark, catch it and you know, make a meal out of it. That's unbelievable. So, now, how, how many would there have to be for there to be a viable population? Any way of knowing? I couldn't. I you have to compare it to like some other large, you know, macro ma, sorry, macro predatory species out there. But I would imagine there would have to be at least a few thousand individuals that have a viable population. Holy smokes! And how long, if for something to grow that size, how long would they live? Well, sea turtles live a pretty long time. I got to handle some of them when I was invited to SeaWorld a few years back. And, uh, which is quite an experience, by the way. I mean, touching these things, the flippers and the neck folds, et cetera. But uh, I would imagine they could live 100 years or more. Absolutely. Like tortoise. Yeah. Uh, since the LaMotta uh, footage, has there been any other uh, video uh, tape evidence? I don't think there's been any videos, but there's anecdotal reports that go back some of them even hundreds of years. So people have, you know, repeated incidents of people seeing enormous turtles. Some of some even saw them, they said, well, it was an albino version, et cetera. But uh, you've got reports. I personally, now this has got to be 20, at least 20 years ago, I would say. Um, I was invited to go shark fishing with some guys out of Brooklyn. I think it was out of Garrison Marina or something we left. And uh, we went about 20 to 30 miles offshore. And along the way, I would say we were probably at least 15 miles out. Um, we encountered an enormous dead sea turtle floating belly up, you know, just in the waves. And it wasn't anything like, uh, you know, what Gary saw. I believe it was a loggerhead from the from what I saw, but it was considerably larger than the known maximum size for the species. I mean, I was. We pulled up next to it because the guys were hoping to see sharks feeding on the carcass, you know. And uh, I don't know if this thing died of old age or if it was struck by a ship or a boat or, you know, you could say. It didn't look like it. It looked fairly fresh. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. But the turtle's body from the plastron, which is on the belly, um, it was upside down. Keep in mind to the top of the, you know, the shell, the carapace was about a yard thick. And that's a oh, really... My. Yeah, this thing was the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. Right. You know, it was an enormous turtle. Yeah, and I mean, back then, you know, I wasn't in this, the field I am in now. So, you know, we just looked at it and you thought, oh, well, that's how they look. You know, they're all that big and they get that big, but they don't, see. So, I mean, there are many you know, reports out there of huge turtles, Hawaii, different places like that, et cetera. Um, you know, there are reports of sea serpents, they call them, and some of those reports match what Gary LaMotta filmed. You know, having a large body, uh, a long neck and head sticking out, this type of thing. I don't have all the, the files with me right now to get into incidents, you know, one by one, but they're out there. More of my conversation with author Max Hawthorne when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. 
Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more... Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Some of you men are members of the Dollar Shave Club where you get your supply of razors in the mail. I always thought that was a great idea. Well, did you know there's also a soap club? The Hero Soap Company makes an amazing product that's delivered right to your house in a resealable pouch so you can take this soap with you on the road, camping, hiking, anywhere. Hero Soap is absolutely chemical-free. It contains no dyes or fragrances. Hey, did you know many mainstream soaps contain parabens, which have been linked to breast cancer and male reproductive issues, according to the FDA. And Hero Soap is owned by veterans. And some of the proceeds from the sale of this wonderful product goes to get homeless veterans off the street. So you can feel clean and refreshed and feel good about yourself knowing you're helping veterans. Use the hassle-free monthly auto ship to save an additional 10% off and never run out of soap again. To order your Hero Soap, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the Hero Soap link. You're going to love this soap. Your showers will never be the same. Hero Soap. Let freedom clean. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Author Max Hawthorne is here. I know you've been asked whether you yourself have seen a sea monster and you responded not definitively. What do you mean by that? Well... <clears throat> I, I had like one incident on a, two incidents on a lake and one on the ocean, you know, that, you know, leave you scratching your head. The, the lake one, uh, the first thing is I, I, I was fishing this uh, small lake in New Jersey. I'm not going to give its name because I may actually go back looking for this thing myself. But, uh, and this was about eight or nine years ago, I want to guess, but, um, the lake is an electric only lake, meaning you can't use your gas engine on the boat. So you have to use your trolling motor to put putt around. And I found a, uh, a dead shad, an American shad that was, uh, you know, 16, 17 inches long, something like that, a couple pounds maybe. And it had a huge bite taken out of its belly region. Uh, and the bite was like five inches across and it was fairly fresh. You could see like the tooth notches in it, et cetera. And it was just unusual because the bite was a, a wide arc though, meaning like this was just the tip of the face of whatever grabbed the shad. And I, uh, I was trying to figure out what did it, you know, pike, muskie. I mean, any of those, it would have to be something far larger than the known maximum for the species. I eventually concluded that someone had released you know, either a giant or northern snakehead or one from their aquarium into this lake. And this thing is one of the dominant predators in there. The snakeheads are able to bite pieces out of fish, smaller fish, you know, the teeth interlock. They have very powerful jaws. And you can see footage. They'll hit a fish. They'll take a chunk out of it. And the fish is like quivering and bleeding to death and, you know, break it in pieces, break it in pieces. And I would imagine that this thing, went through like a, a school of shad, just like 
you know, like the Grim Reaper, slashing and biting and biting and biting. And this poor fish just floated to the surface, breathing its last. And, you know, I found it. But it, it, the jaw mark does look like a snakehead, except that it's got to be a world record size snakehead, you know, larger than the, the IGFA has listed. Right. So, right. you know, it's in there if it still hasn't died of old age. But the same lake, and this makes me really suspect that somebody with a big aquarium was using it as a dumping ground for their uh, their pets, let's say, or something. I was with my dad, so he saw it too, and uh, we're out there fishing. And we saw what we thought were two very large submerged fish about six feet apart that were just kind of swimming parallel to one another and just moving lazily along this lake. And... We're looking at it, you, you know, the water was murky, so you couldn't see them, but you would see the swash, you know, the swirls as they moved, like the disturbance of the water. And we're, I tried following them, you know, we'd try to get close to them, we would, they would accelerate a little bit or change direction. So we would pace them, and as long as we stayed about 30 feet back, you know, they didn't seem alarmed. But we noticed they never separated. And then my dad said, Max, you ever consider the possibility that's two parts with the same animal, oh. you know? And I was like, that's interesting, you know? And I didn't have my, my cell phone or anything. I, I If I'd taken a video, it would have been great. But, uh, and I, I later I thought about it, and, you know, I'm thinking, you know, freshwater stingray, people sometimes have them in fish tanks, and they get huge. I mean, you've seen Jeremy Wade and these people, you know, they haul in these things, sometimes they weigh 700 pounds. Right, right. And when they swim, yeah, when they swim, they use the outside edges of their flippers, they undulate to move around. And that would explain the twin swashes that were coming up if this thing was down there moving. So I went back, like the following week, and I had a bow and arrow with me, a fishing bow and arrow the kind that has like a you know a cable attached to it with the arrow etc for bow fishing right and i was thinking you know if i go out there and i see this thing i'm going to just take a shot dead center between these two marks and see what i hit you know fortunately i was by myself i didn't see it that day and that didn't happen so <laughs> it could have it could have been quite a you know unnerving experience getting towed around a lake by something right right like robert shaw <laughs> um, exactly <laughs> we're gonna need a bigger boat uh knowing what you know might be in the water and you know writing uh, uh about these things are you afraid of the water at all um I will be much more apprehensive. I mean, shark sharks are a lot more common, obviously, than anything else you're going to find out there. But I would be apprehensive, you know, going in the ocean in certain areas. You know, one should always exercise a, a modicum of caution, et cetera. In terms of a lake, you know, one would think that would typically be less uh, hazards to one's health, you know. So, I mean, I, I would be happy. I don't think you're allowed to swim in that lake in particular, but I would go down there know with scuba gear and see i mean if i could find this thing alive and get video footage of it or something or just even put an underwater camera down there it would be great you know the ocean is a different story see the the one time that i had something unexplained happen there was uh, we were grouper fishing out of port charlotte catching goliath grouper and i've you know had fish on the line that weighed 500 pounds um, but this one day uh, we were, you know, hauling them. The fish were pretty small. They all weighed like 90, 100 pounds, which is not a big <laughs> Oh, is that all? Well, yeah, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like a big fish. But, you know, when you're using 500-pound steel cable for a leader so you don't get broken off on sharp, you know, a sharp reef or a piling, and then 400 pounds as mono, you know, a 90-pound fish is not very big, you know. But I was fighting this one fish, and, you know, it was a typical fish. I hadn't seen him yet. And then all of a sudden, he seemed to, like, quintuple in weight or something like that. You know, like, it was like, you know, you're fighting, fighting, and all of a sudden, it's like, boom! And I almost got pulled over. I smashed into the, the bowling platform sideways there. I'm holding on for dear life, you know, and it's pulling, lines are screeching off there. And then the rod snaps in half. And this is a, a tuna rod, you know, designed for bluefin tuna. It breaks right in half. He screams off all the steel cable. He hits the monofilament, and it breaks like nothing. 400-pound test line. Crack! Like wow. that. And then 
when that happens, there is a swirl that comes up, like, you know, when a fish swirls, like, like, boom, like turns and it takes off or something. Mm-hmm. And the swirl was like 13 feet across. You know, it looked like a hippopotamus had, you know, like, like just boom, like, like taken off or something like that. Now, I, I imagine that that was a giant grouper. I mean, they, they get 800, 900 pounds sometimes. So an enormous one of those probably ate the small grouper that was on the line, made a meal out of him, broke my rod, broke my line, you know, and almost put me in the drink with him. So you don't want to be in the water with one of those. You know, people always think like, oh, look at this 500-pound grouper coming up to me, you know, swimming next to me, looking at me. They're such curious creatures. And I laugh because the grouper is not curious when he looks at you. He's measuring. Oh, wow. You see? Well, he fit in my they mouth. Swallow. <laughs> exactly. You know, these fish, they don't have teeth to break things up like a shark does. They don't take bites. They swallow their prey like a large amount of bass on steroids does whole. So when he's looking at you, he's calculating, will that fit? And if he thinks you're going to fit, he's going to try. You know? That's so you chilling. That's chilling. Yeah. Um. Have you been to Africa, uh, explored any of the rivers like the Zambezi River there? I'm thinking of these uh, these Goliath tiger fish. Those are the, some of the most fearsome looking creatures I have ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's on the bucket list, but honestly, my adventures have been limited to the US, to you know, parts of Alaska, Florida, California, et cetera. And I've been lately uh, doing some stuff down in the Caribbean, Bahamas, that type of stuff. But, uh, you know, all, all things in time. But, you know, the tiger fish is an incredible fish. I mean, sure, with the exception of the Nile crop, you know, it's the most feared thing in the water there, I guess. Well, the hippo. Right. But fish-wise. Right. right. Um, uh, a good acquaintance, I guess, is a, a friend. I haven't talked to him in a number of years, but Dr. William Gibbons uh, has been to the Congo Basin a number of times in search of Mokelium bembe, this this uh, creature that uh, some of the locals there uh, seem to think resembles. They've been shown pictures of different creatures, and uh, it, it looks like it could be some sort of a, um, a, a seropod. Yeah, yeah. Sort. What do you think of? Yeah, what? like I, I mean, I think anything's possible. Um, you know, you got to question like how educated are the people that are being spoken to? Are they you know, telling something, you know, for a reason or something, something they want people to think, hoping that it's going to bring more, you know, uh, resources their way, et cetera. Or is it, you know, something real? Um, I was on a, a program recently called The Haunted Sea and discussing, uh, you know, new revelations for the extinct therapist Spinosaurus, which we now know, courtesy of the paleontologist Ibrahim et al., was you know a largely or almost entirely aquatic animal, and in that same area, and I don't know the name of the cryptid, but uh, it's I believe it's the same area in the Congo. There have been also reports of an animal that they say comes out of the water that looks sort of like a stegosaurus. You know, the animal with the plates on its back. Right, right. And so, so the question was brought up, could this be a Spinosaurus, you know, which was lived in that region, lived in Africa at least, in Morocco, et cetera. Um, maybe it was widespread, you know, that has evolved and is still eking out an existence there in a small population. And that's something that would be, like, like sauropods are believed to be almost, you know, predominantly terrestrial. Now, they live more on dry land. They don't go in the, the water except to travel across one body. They don't live in the water. But Spinosaurus was more like a crocodile. It spent 90% of its time in the water. So since Spinosaurus does have a relatively long neck, you know, and that long snout would even look like an extension of a neck, you know, it's possible that the Mokele Mbembe sightings would theoretically then could be the same species. No, not a sauropod that eats plants, but a giant fish-eating lake dragon, for one of the better <laughs> A lake dragon, wonderful. Well, they get 50 wonderful. feet long. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, yeah. Wow. But, uh, and big enough at, at large sizes possibly eat a, a small person. So, 
boy, oh boy, I don't think I'll ever go near the water again. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it would be incredible if you think about it, if there, something like that still existed. Oh, I mean, it would change everything. Yeah. It's like everything that's going on with the, with the, with the Sasquatch DNA, the genoming and stuff lately. You know, a lot of stuff on the horizon. Indeed, indeed. Uh, you mentioned a crocodile. You've had an encounter with an alligator, I, I understand. Yeah, that was something. Oh, you, you want to hear the story, don't you? No, I thought I would just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> Please uh, tell, gosh. do tell. It's just, it's, it's just an embarrassing story, sort of. But uh, so this goes, I, I know the, the time frame because my wife was pregnant with our little girl then. And she was, you know, she was quite pregnant. Um, and she still caught the biggest fish when we went bass fishing that next day. But anyway, kudos to her. Um, so I had, we had a rental property at the time in, um, oh gosh, it was in the Kissimmee area. Uh, it was called Lake Berkeley. And it was like a private community, you know, gated community. And they had a, I think it was a 12 acre lake, you know, man-made lake behind all the villas back there. And it was, it had all sorts of fish in there and stuff, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I had flown my dad in. He was living in Arizona. He flew from Arizona. I, you know, I wanted to do the whole spiel for him for his birthday, you know, fishing and Disney and all this other stuff. So we knew there were a lot of fish back there. We got some, had some rods. And uh, as we were going back there, we ran into a fish and game guy. And he was telling us, uh, he goes, uh, just be careful. There's a seven foot alligator in there. So just, you know, be on your toes. And we were like, oh, cool. Great. No problem. Um, you know, we fished the whole day. We didn't see him. You know, by the second day, you think, you know, I mean, this thing could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of water. And they come and go. They move from bodies of water. So, you know, I didn't really pay it any mind. So on the second day, we were uh, down in the back section of the lake. And I remember because we were, we, we were on this, like, level ground. And then there was a bit of a lip. Like I said, it was a man-made lip. I mean, lake. But anyway, my God. <laughs> A man may lift, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> a lot of collagen in there. So um, the uh, the lake had a, like a lip that came up a little bit of grassy sort of thing. And this helped with the situation, as you'll see in a second. So we were on this level, little plateau, we'll call it there, grass fishing. There were some cattails out there and stuff. And uh, off to the right next to us, there was a huge drainage pipe that connected to the lake if it overflowed or whatever, that type of thing. And one of those like five foot wide pipes or something. And it was the hill next to it was super steep. So my dad was kind of cornered there, which comes into play in a second. We were catching um, blue tilapia and we were having a great day. We were hauling in one fish after another, catching them, let them go, catching them, let them go. And these fish range from like two to five pounds. You know, we were having a blast. And I think the, the fish thrashing and maybe a little bit of blood in the water and stuff, you know, drew the alligator. So we're standing there. My dad's on my left. I'm facing the lake. The lake is at my feet, the water. And all of a sudden, I see this big log just kind of coming toward me, you know. And I'm like, you know, I'm really not paying any mind to it. You know, I'm from Brooklyn. You don't see a lot of alligators, <laughs> you know, in Brooklyn and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's getting closer and closer. And then all of a sudden, the log's mouth opened, and I saw the teeth. And I looked down, and I was like, whoa. And I, I used to do a lot of boxing back then. And so I, like, literally just sprang back, like, six feet, boom, mm-hmm. like that. And I went, Dad, watch out for the gator, like that. So when I said that, he turned. And when he moved, the alligator saw him. And most alligator attacks in Florida and stuff are on seniors and children, if you look up the statistics. Ah. You know, they they know when something is a small enough to be prey or somebody's, you know, elderly, infirm, and vulnerable. My dad was 80 at the time. So, wow. You know, with a heart condition. So it zeroed him. Mm-hmm. And I saw it. You know, it was like, I got you. And it came up and it got to the edge of the water there and it was preparing to just spring up and grab him by the leg. You know, and I was like, oh. So now you're faced with, you know, whatever, 150, 200 pounds of hungry reptile. And your instinct is to get out of Dodge. Right, right. You know, it, it happens, you know. I'm not the crocodile hunter. I don't have any experience, <laughs> you know, jumping on a gator's back and putting him in a sleeper hole to try and knock <laughs> him out or, you know, the, you know, giving him the elbow drop and stuff, you know. So I felt that instinct, but I was like, I couldn't because, you know, 
the old man was trapped and cornered at this point. You know, he had nowhere to go. I could see it. The hill behind him was like a steep 45-degree angle or higher. He wasn't getting up that. So the gator had him cornered, and I, I didn't have any weapons. You know? So as it climbs out of the water there, and it, it gets, you know, I see it tense. I'm looking around, and I had a fishing rod, and I had a landing net. You know, when there's one to slide out, the aluminum ones, maybe you know, four and a half feet long, something like that. Right. And that was the only weapon I had. So I grabbed it, and I ran up, and I just cracked him over the head as hard as I could. It felt like hitting concrete. Mm-hmm. You know, an aluminum that isn't a super heavy weapon, let's call it. But, you know, wham. But I must have, like, you know, startled him or I don't know what. Because he sprang back into the water with this huge crash. And he, like, submerged and, and took off, you know. And my dad's like, man, that was close. Thanks. And I'm like, no problem. I'm here for you, you know. <laughs> and then as we're saying that... About 20 feet out, the gator surfaces, and I have pictures of this at this point, just his eyes, and he was looking at us, and I could see his eyes, and he you know, looked very angry. And then he made this noise, this sort of like, it sounded like, okay. <laughs> you felt it through your feet, you know? And I just, I knew it was coming, I went, oh, here it comes. And I, I tossed my dad my digital camera, and I said, take pictures of this. This is going to be good. And Spike, as we would call, eventually started calling him, you know, <laughs> later and stuff, bum rushes me. Not my dad. He wanted me at this point. And he comes at me full tilt, tail churning. Wow. Like this. And like I said, there was that little lip that came up, you know, like if it had been just like a natural lake where it was completely sloped like that, might have given him a little more speed. And he might have been on me before I had really had a chance to, you know, meet him halfway. But he came so fast that he got his entire head, chest, and stomach up out of the water. And as his hind legs were digging in to come out the rest of the way, I jumped on him and I just started like, you know, bang, bang. And I was just like wailing on this gator with this net. And he's like snapping at me and snarling. And he grabbed the net and he crunched it at one point. My dad's taking pictures while this is going on. And he's remarkably calm. I mean, I'm cursing up the storm. And he's like <laughs> clicking pictures, which were horrible pictures, by the way, all blurry from those <laughs> And he's like, click. He's like, that's it, Max. Click. Take it to him. Click. Watch the teeth. Like this. And I'm like, will you shut up? You know? And eventually, I think I hit him like six or eight times. I must have got him in the eye. You know? And he just like, it stung. And he jumped back in the water. And then he, he didn't leave, though. He was about 10 feet away, sideways, just looking at me, real pissed off. You know, and he's like, uh-huh, all right. So then we decided to keep fishing like idiots, and he started stealing our catch. You know, you'd be reeling in a fish, and boom, he would take it, rip it right off the, the, the line. And he must have done this five or six times. Uh, we were finally threw up our hands. Uh, and he eventually, oh, and he also tried to eat a neighbor's dog. There was a big white dog came down of his bark at him, and he crawled up out of the water on the edge of the, he was trying to grab the dog, but the dog was smart enough to back up up the hill a bit and, you know, retreat. Right. You know? But after eating like 10 or 15 pounds of fish, I guess he was full. <laughs> so then he swims up to the edge of the lake, about 20 feet to my right, puts his chin on the grass, and just starts sunning himself without a care in the world. You know, I, I took some beautiful pictures of him then. I mean, high def, great pictures, you know. <laughs> I, I, at one point, I was tempted to put my hand near him, but my, my dad's like, you need to write. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> What's embarrassing so, about that story? That's an incredible story. Yeah, well, you know, just, I don't know. Like, like, it's just not very Tarzan-ish, if you know what I'm saying, you know. <laughs> but the funny part was then afterwards, we go back into the, the villa, and we're sitting there, and we open a couple of beers to – toast or surviving and all that you know and he's like he's like wow that was really something he goes you're never gonna forget this i said yeah i said i'm just glad dad that it wasn't one of those 14 foot 800 900 pounders that they got down here you know that it was a relatively smallish gator and he goes yeah imagine i said no you're not understanding me i said if that thing had weighed 900 pounds 
I would have made tracks of Tijuana, and he would have eaten you for sure. <laughs> like, that's not funny. <laughs> I was laughing, but I don't know if there was some truth to that or not. Oh, you know? that's a, a wonderful story. Max, it's oh. been so much uh, fun spending some time with you. How do people uh, get a copy of one of your Kronos, series, uh, Kronos Rising series of books? Uh, well, I mean, uh, the easiest, Amazon has everything. The new novel, actually, uh, the release date for, is, the new novel is called Cronus Rising Kraken, Volume 3. It's the seventh book in the series, and its release date was just announced. It's going to be out on the 4th of July, and pre-sales will be starting shortly. Um, but people can go on my author's website, uh, either at maxhawthorne.com, M-A-X, Hawthorne with the egoman.com, or they can just go to chronosrising.com, and Cronus is the K. Um, it's a great site. There's a paleo gallery with a lot of artwork, uh, some blog posts, articles, and stuff that I've put out, a lot of free reading. Uh, there's a free book session where they get excerpts from all the novels, and uh, you know, a lot of people, if they have Kindle Unlimited, can even read books. The books are free. So yeah, a lot of fun to visit. So, Volume 3 coming out of Kronos Rising, Volume 3 coming out in July. Uh, release the Kraken. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been doing the series for six years, so this may be the last one in the series for a while. You know, I'm a little pliosaur slash Kraken out and all that, but uh, it's a huge book. I mean, it's a big book, 550 pages. People really get their money's worth. A lot of action and adventure, all the character arcs. I mean, even the monsters have character arcs, believe it or not. Fantastic. So, yeah, people will enjoy it. They will not be disappointed with the long wait they've had. Is it a book that you would take to the beach? <laughs> Definitely. In fact, if you take it to the beach, I get emails and, and social media comments and stuff. People tell me, like, you know, I, I love your books, but but I, I take it to the beach and I, keep, I won't go in the water. You know? I mean, one lady said it was the scariest, like Cronus Rising, the first book was the scariest book she ever read. She actually said in her Amazon review that she cleaned her entire house in two days because she would read a chapter, and when it got too scary, she would put the book down, and then she'd clean the bathroom. And then she'd come <laughs> back to it, pick it up again, and she'd read some more, and then she'd clean her kitchen. And then it got too scary, she'd put it down. You know, and she said over the course of two days, I cleaned my entire house top to bottom. Places never looked better, and I survived the book. Best book ever. Love it. You know, it's very flattering to read this stuff. I'll you say. Know, I, just, I strive for realism. So I want people to feel like, you know, I, I'm not one of those writers that has this less is, is more philosophy where, you know, you, you want to like make the reader imagine everything. I like to pride myself on putting you in the scene. So when you're reading about somebody in the water and something is coming up under them and they feel that pressure wave washing over them, et cetera. And I, I want you to feel like you're really there. Like you're like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, my boys, uh, they need to clean their room, so maybe I'll get them a copy for their birthday. <laughs> that, how old? 13. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that, that would be all right, definitely. Very motivating, you know? I'll say. Max, a real delight, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Richard, it was my sincerest pleasure, and I thank you so much for having me. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back after a brief timeout to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. The discovery of carbon-60 is likely to be the most amazing chemistry discovery of the late 20th century. And my friends at C60Evo.com are the world's number one manufacturer of C60. The safe, consumable form of pure C60 is called ESS60. And the mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning. ESS60 is the C60 formulation used in the famous 2012 original Paris study that showed ESS60 doubled the lifespan of rats. ESS60 from C60Evo.com is raw C60 that's been produced, certified, and guaranteed for safe human consumption. ESS60 from C60Evo.com is a powerful molecule that acts as a nano-antioxidant to attract, stabilize, and neutralize free radicals. 
It's also known to have 172 times the antioxidant power of vitamin C, 172 times, which may be why people are feeling healthier on C60. All I know is the mighty Aphrodite and I are sleeping great and we're both pain-free. To get your bottle of ESS60, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the c60evo.com link. Use the code RS1SPEC to get 5% off. RS1SPEC and get 5% off. It's time to start taking responsibility for your health. Time to support your immune system. Join the mighty Aphrodite and I. If you want more energy, mental clarity, and a great night's sleep, ESS60 from C60Evo.com. Again, go to the episode notes and click on the C60Evo.com link and use the promo code RS1SPEC to get 5% off. Coming up next time, John O'Connor, the attorney for Watergate's Deep Throat, discusses how the Washington Post actually covered up one of the great political scandals in U.S. history, as well as its parallels to Obamagate and the unmasking of General Mike Flynn. And the reason people in the administration of Obama were out to get Flynn was because he, of all people, knew that this Russian intelligence deal was a big hoax. He knew where the bodies were buried. He could look at the Steele dossier right away and see it was a phony, whereas other people in Trump's cabinet could not. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>